Welcome to Archaeology Books for Fun, a podcast where we discuss books that are about archaeology but anyone can enjoy. I'm your host, Tristan Herrenstein, and with me as always is my co-host, Barbara Clark. Hello, everybody. And today we are moving on to the second section, the next three chapters of In Small Things Forgotten. And this is actually a special podcast today. Do you know which one this is, Barbara? Double digits. Is this it is, really? This is our 10th podcast, yes. Full episode, not including the introduction or the uh, bonus episode. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. So there we go. Before we jump into the book today, though, we actually have a few comments we want to read. So this first comment was left on our YouTube video for Cattle Hayuk, and this comes from Amy. I discovered your podcast on Spotify the other day, and I'm loving the content. Ancient civilizations have always been fascinating to me. I look forward to future reviews. I studied geology in university, so when you guys were discussing stratified layers, I was a happy clam. I believe one reason why most people struggle with the concept is scale. Most people don't think on an archaeological or geological scale. In everyday life, it doesn't take centuries for anything significant to happen. Anyway, I hope you all have a nice day. Cannot wait to see other civilizations you might cover. Well, thank you, Amy. That's a very nice review. We're glad you're enjoying it so much. And yeah, I agree. Actually, finding ways of getting these really abstract, uh, big or long time scale concepts to connect with people is one of the major challenges of public outreach in archaeology and probably in most sciences, really. From yeah. The bigger, the really big or the really teeny. I think we have a tendency to, because we're doing it day in, day out, and we come to think like that, but we sometimes forget other people do not. So right. I'm, I'm glad we're getting the message across. That's awesome. Well, and it's interesting, too, because when you do interpretations, one of the good ways of grabbing people is with the really big or the really old or the really small. But grabbing their attention is not the same as getting them to connect with that idea. And then, then that becomes a different issue, I think, That's too. true, yeah. So for our last episode, uh, or our previous episode of In Small Things Forgotten, we have two comments. So I'm going to read them both. And these are both on YouTube as well. Yes. The first one is from At Seminole War. They say, what a great program. I have done historical research for over 40 years and it is a subject which I don't think has been taken seriously until recently. It is great that the field of archaeology is branching out into so many areas. My mother was a cultural anthropologist, and she once said that she wanted to find out about the living cultures and not wait until they have died out. That's good. Yeah, there's a difference between cultural anthropology and archaeology. But we, as archaeologists, tend to deal more with the... Uh, the past, no longer in existence type cultures, I guess you could say. Or, or those from different the... Different yeah. than they were. Because if you look back at the uh, Four Lost Cities, that was a major theme, is that not, these cultures aren't necessarily gone, but they are different from what, what they, they were at one point. And yeah. that's, that's a natural yeah. part of everything, is that Whereas it changes. cultural anthropologists uh, look at cultures as they exist today. And there's cultural anthropologists that study... You know, we think, oh, you have to go out into the Amazon and study these cultures that are kind of far removed from what we would consider modern society. But there's anthropologists, cultural anthropologists that study the homeless and things like that. And they study them so that we can better help people that are in need of help. Well, and the two are archaeology and anth cultural anthropology in the U.S. aren't always that easy to distinguish either. There are archaeologists who also study homeless camps. So the two are very much similar. And the idea for that is that these camps are so temporary that, you know, 50 to 100 years from now, we're not going to see any signs of them. So if we're going to record these things and try to understand 
this way of life, then we have to study it now. So there is overlap, and that's more and more I'm seeing archaeology and anthropology and archaeology and history, these lines tend to blur more and more with historians are studying culture history now, which is just archaeology, yeah. you know? So yeah. it's kind of fascinating and fun to watch that happen Yeah, because the, the lines are really pretty arbitrary and not necessary in a lot of cases. And I think we're better off reducing that. Yeah, no, I think it shows because, you know, one thing I heard a lot when I was majoring or when I would tell people that I was going to major in archaeology, oh, well, why are you going to study something so irrelevant? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That'll be worth it kind of thing. And I think this shows that both archaeology, anthropology, and other social sciences have a use in modern society, and they can be used to help people and help cultures and kind of bring awareness to certain issues that maybe wouldn't otherwise exist. And to help society and to help us with technological things that we may actually have forgotten. You know, we've covered some of that. So lots yeah. of different stuff. Social sciences matter and they are indeed relevant. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we have um, another comment also from YouTube from uh, at Reverend Howell. I live in Europe. I live within walking distance of a 2,000-year-old earthwork hill fort, a 600-year-old stone-built castle, and a late 1930s military airfield. I'd have to take a half-hour bus ride to see the amphitheater built by our contact culture, in quotes the Romans who brought us writing and history. Thank you for sharing such an interesting conversation. First of all, I want to live where this person lives. <laughs> like, sure, that sounds amazing. Well, and it's great that they're so aware of the history that they have in our area. And, you know, even in the U.S., like we don't have Romans, but there is a lot more history than I think people often are aware of. Yeah. And that's part, again, part of our job and part of our mission is help people become aware of what is actually in your backyard, figuratively speaking. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, because here in Florida, we think of the Spanish as kind of our, quote, contact culture. And I never thought of, like, other... Of Europe. Yeah, I think. of yeah. having a contact culture. But yeah, I guess the Romans fit that bill. That's sure. interesting. And thank you for sharing that. It brings a little bit of a different perspective to my thought process on that. Um, but yes, people, go explore your backyard. There's history and archaeology everywhere. So you don't have to go traveling far and wide to find it. A lot of times it's a half hour bus ride away. It's fun to do that too, but you can definitely find it close by for sure. Yeah. But thank you everybody for your comments and hopefully we'll get more of them and we'll read them as we get them. But we appreciate them. We appreciate the feedback. Yep. So you can leave comments or reviews, whatever is appropriate for your platform. But we really appreciate the feedback for sure. All right, so we're moving into our first chapter for the day, chapter four, titled Remember Me As You Pass By. And if you listen to our last episode, Barbara and I alluded to, this is probably one of our favorite subjects within this book. There's a lot to like in this book, but this is a good one. This is one of that is close to our hearts. I do love a good conversation on cemeteries, you guys. Yes, and so this one is all about cemeteries in the New England area. And so he starts with talking about how archaeology today has three concepts, space, time, and form. And essentially, the idea, as is common for science in general, if you can control for two of these things, then you can study variations in the third one. So, you know, that's a very basic science concept that, you know, control all the variables except the one you want to test and then see how that one changes. And that's what makes a cemetery such a good kind of cultural laboratory, so to speak, to exactly. learn to learn about the past. And because they like all three of those space, time and form, I had to look at my notes for the, the third one. 
can be controlled and kind of calibrated. Yeah, specifically, so, so time is relatively easy to uh, uh, to figure out, although he does, I think, note that sometimes stones were deposited after the death, but it's usually within a few years. Yeah. Uh, so there are some exceptions to that, but not very many. And with anything, there's going to be outliers, right? People are complicated. Yep. Yep. And so in this case, he is going to control for space and time and then look at how the form changes within these headstones. And this, like we talked about last time, how chronology is kind of, at least for me, one of the least interesting things to be talking about with archaeology. It's a useful tool, but it isn't like what I want to hear about ultimately. However. However, <laughs> this is right in, on par. Actually, all three chapters today are right on with kind of the stuff that I get pretty interested in. Well, and I think it's it's different because in this context, it brings to light more about how the culture was changing. It's not just this is older than this is older than this. It's these cultural changes are reflected in the material culture and we can see each changing. Right. And these changes mean something even if we don't always know what it is. Right. And I think a lot of times people just get bogged down in older is cooler mm -hmm. and it, they don't move to the next step, which is like, yes, that's cool, but this is what it means about the people. Well, and for me, the stories are cooler, which is one of the reasons I'm drawn to historic archaeology yeah. specifically. You can get the stories in prehistoric archaeology, too. It is just much more difficult or much less concrete, I think, in what you can figure out a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. There are definitely exceptions to that. He starts talking about the headstones and kind of how they functioned in the area. They, these were done by typically, especially early on, by local artisans who were doing this part time. This wasn't a full time business for them. And he observes that they typically had about a range of about 30 miles. So fairly local uh, clients, essentially, for these people. I did observe that that probably applies more specifically to this earlier time, because now, like, we have headstones here in Florida that, that come from Georgia, North Carolina, we know. Yeah, we even, I've seen some where even relatively early on, probably not as early as New England, but they were being shipped down from where these folks came from right. that were living in Florida. So we the style was a little different then. Which is um, fascinating, too. Yeah, yeah. But we're, those are talking, you know, 1830 to 1850. Yeah. That's quite a bit later than what he's right. really talking about here. And I mean, I just think it's very fascinating that you can come up with a range for these carvers by looking at all the data points. Like that, to even think to do that, to me, is pretty, yeah. pretty cool. And so one of the ways that he identifies these individuals is a lot of times some of them will sign their stones. And if you go to Historic Cemetery, you can look typically on the back, on the bottom. Mm -hmm. You can sometimes see a little uh, signature, essentially, and that is the person who made that stone. And so you could look that person up, see where they were living and where this stone came from and all those details. And a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times this was a skill that was kind of passed down in the generation. So you might have a father who teaches their son to carve and so on and so forth. And you can even see the styles change from different generations of carvers. Sure. Yeah, the, the style gets passed on, but then that style becomes that person's own individual style as well. Yeah. And then there's also, as he'll talk about, you know, influences from the outside to varying degrees depending on their location. He talks about a concept called seriation, which I remember hearing about, but I haven't heard about since probably undergraduate or reading this book even maybe. When I learned about seriation, I, 
to me, I think more prehistoric. So mm-hmm. it was kind of weird to hear it in s- historic cemetery terminology. Well, that was kind of his point too, yeah. is this has been an assumed thing in, uh, in prehistoric situations, but it hasn't been able to be really thoroughly tested. And so here we can actually test how accurate that is. And so for those who don't know, seriation is a concept of when you look at how a chart for how popular a trend is, it will have one peak for when it's most popular and then it'll have two tail ends for when it's coming into popularity and fading out of popularity. And so the assumption is that there will always be one. And if you end up having two peaks, then probably it usually means that you should actually be separating something out into two separate categories is how that has usually been assumed. But as we'll see, he finds that that's not necessarily always the best thing to do. I don't know how this has developed. The fact that we don't hear about it anymore might be a clue that we, they found that it's just too unreliable, maybe. Yeah, I don't. I mean, like you said as well, I haven't really heard about this since undergrad. My graduate studies were based more on historic archaeology and also in Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know if this is something that students still learn about and in what context, whether it's being used to talk about historic archaeology or not. Well, and one of the benefits he talks about is that this could be used to establish a chronology for items and how they change, even when you lack the exact dates for when they were made. Right. We might have reached a point where that is not as relevant as it was at this time, too. That's true. With carbon dating and other dating techniques and just establishing chronologies, that could be one of the reasons we have the luxury of not being interested in chronologies because it's been so established now. That's Yeah, that's a valid point. That's true. So anyway, he does say that gravestones fit this pattern quite nicely, but there are some some possible exceptions, but he leaves it to the end to kind of tell us that. So that feels like a very much a teaser for everyone who's invested in seriation. So he identifies three patterns in headstone trends. And this might fit if you think about uh, what we saw with the patterns in changing culture in our previous sections in pottery specifically, where we have the very communal culture of the early American colonists, and then we have the trend towards more individualized culture and more unique from England, and then finally a trend towards becoming uh, re-anglicized. Re-anglicized, yeah, <laughs> which I had never really heard that term before. Eagerly adopting more, more and more of the English culture back into American culture. And so we'll see a similar trend with, well, everything we're talking yeah, about today. Yeah, I think all, all these chapters especially. fit that bill, yeah. Yeah. So we start off with the winged death head, which is my favorite. So cool. Those are my, they're so cool. They're very gothic looking and very just dark imagery kind yeah, of. So perfectly. this is essentially a skull with wings. Yeah. And it's not a nice thing to look at. I've heard it described as death as kind of a fearful thing at this time. He has different mm-hmm. ways of describing it in this, I noticed, but... I think that probably fits too. Yeah. And then we move into kind of a a softer imagery, which is with a winged cherub. Right. And you can see how it can move from one to the other. And he identifies this shift as, I think he said, largely because of a shift in religious doctrine. And essentially, there is a, a decline in Orthodox Puritanism and a move away from, yeah, this was a revival period that was more focused on personal faith. Yeah. As opposed to uh, communal, right? And there the, was there's that trend again. That he refers to Puritans as iconophobic. <laughs> so, mm. like, and it kind of makes sense when you like read about Puritan religion. But yeah, the individual Puritans, I guess, kind of believed in the group orthodoxy, kind of like you work 
hard for the group so that we all succeed kind of thing. Later on, you move into more individualized thing. And he talks, it's interesting because he uses the word supernatural. The individual is personally involved with the supernatural. And I think by that, he, you know, he, when I think supernatural, I always think like ghosts and goblins and right. things, but he's talking about more religious based supernatural. So I just wanted to point that out because at first I was, maybe I just was starting to kind of trail off on a tangent <laughs> in my mind. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> but that's what he means. Yeah. And then after the winged cherub, we move to a willow tree overhanging an urn, which he talks about a little bit, but it definitely isn't his favorite thing to talk about, I think. I know, which is interesting because next to the death heads, I would say the willow tree iconography is beautiful. Well, it's something that we actually see here in Florida. Like yeah, I said, it, a lot. This is mostly taking place before Florida is a, an American colony. Yeah. But by the time it is an American colony, we still see a lot of the willow tree, but we don't see any death's head. I've never seen a death's head. I would love to see a death's head. I, it would be awesome to see yeah. one here in Florida. I, when we went, when we had a conference in Boston, I went and looked at all the death heads and we yeah. don't have slate here either. You Well, very rarely do you see slate headstones. It's shipped in sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But, up, you know, in the New England area, that's one of the major types of stone that they use for headstones. Here, we don't see that. Mm -hmm. So it was really cool to see all these death heads and slate and it's just beautiful. And as far as cherubs, I've, I've seen a few, but it's usually associated with children's grave. Yeah, that's a, I, and this is, that's what threw me off with this is I've always thought of it as being something associated with children, and it's usually a little like statuette. Mm -hmm. It's not carved into the stone. It's like a statuette of either a little cherub or a lamb or something like that. I've seen some that are carved in the stone. Um, the broken flower is that's a common true. one that's yeah. usually a sign of life cut short. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. Often it is a little statuette. Yeah. For sure. At least... The ones that we see, of right, course. Here right, here in Florida. Like and I... it's also important to remember that the people who were being able to afford headstones for their children were probably the more well-off groups as well. So yeah. that's a, actually a, a thing he talks about a fair bit in this chapter, and I really and in the next one too, I appreciate his acknowledgement of kind of how what exists still can bias our view of what was. Yeah. And I thought that was really well done. It wasn't overdone, but he certainly made sure to call it out when it was important to talk about it. And another thing I thought was interesting is he kind of talks about the epitaphs, the mm -hmm. written word on the stone and how that changed over time. The difference between here lies buried so-and-so and here lies the body of so-and-so, suggesting that like only the corruptible parts rest in the soil like the soul has moved on and the earthly parts are still left here um, which kind of goes back to that the focus is more on the resurrection yeah idea than yeah. on this person has right died here um and then and then finally with the willow trees you see in memorial to or you know yeah. which is even more so yeah um, more of a a personal thing for the family I right would say and sometimes he talks about how sometimes you know, they would put markers memorializing someone who had passed like in a shipwreck or something like that where they don't actually have the remains, but they still want to have a marker for the family to mem memorialize that person. And that's too. something that only shows up in this latest period. Yeah. Because the other periods are the body is here. Yeah. And if you didn't have the body, then you didn't put it. You didn't have a marker. Yeah. So that is, again, a shift in in how these things are treated and, and viewed. So then he starts talking about trends and how these trends come about. So we start off with the death's head that came over from England. 
And then actually in England, the chair starts to become popular, but we see it transition to the Americas about 50 years after it's become popular in England, which makes a lot of sense considering the transition of space that had to go on and, and how arduous that was. In particular, so we see in Cambridge, the elites are some of the first ones to start adopting the cherub, which makes, again, makes sense. They might be making those trips to England. They might be educated in England. They are exposed to this, and they also have the means to order a custom-made headstone, right? But then, for me, the interesting part becomes in how this kind of gets spread to the neighboring regions. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so a nearby town, for example, he said, picks it up fairly quickly and not to the same degree, but definitely seems to pick it up. And you see a little variation, but not super dramatic. We're starting to see some of the push and pull. If you remember us talk last time about folk versus popular culture. Right, yeah. So the cherubs are coming in as popular culture, and you have the folk culture that is using, in this case, the death's headstone still. And so there's a little bit of, like I said, push and pull between the two. And how they're adapted is kind of brought into their own thing, not not always necessarily how they were initially intended to be used. Well, and he also talks about how, like, the retention of older styles for, like, children's graves may be indicative of the fact that, like, parents choose the graves, like, the older generation chooses the graves for their children, so that can kind of skew things as well. Sure. But as cherubs spread through the more rural areas, I thought this was so cool, we can actually track the rate of spread. And they actually spread about one mile a year. Which, when I was, I had to reread that because <laughs> I was like, how on earth? I mean, but as you read it, you're like, oh, that's, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. But it just, very rarely in archaeology can we track the spread of something. To that level. Of yeah. yeah. So it was kind of mind-blowing. But it makes sense that we would be able to do it with headstones. They have dates and such on them. And we even know sometimes who made them. You know, right. like. <laughs> right. And they're going to be common enough that we'll have a large sample size and we can maybe do that with. And then he starts talking about some of the individual carvers in these more rural areas. And I can tell that this is where he gets kind of excited. Yeah, he does. It was a lot. It was <laughs> to a lot. kind of digest and keep straight. But it's I could feel his enthusiasm. So yeah. it kind of carried me through. Yeah. But if you get bogged down in it as the reader, don't worry too much about it. It's fascinating, but it, it's not going to kind of throw off your whole understanding of the book if you just skim through this. You can skim some of the descriptions and focus on kind of the big ideas that yeah, he's talking exactly. about. It's not too bad. If you really get into it, though, there's plenty of detail for oh, you. So much detail. And it's, it is, it is to me, I like historic cemeteries, and I know there are other people out there that do as well. You would probably find this fascinating. I would have liked, I know this is maybe a product of when the book was made too. I would have liked more example pictures because he does kind of show how some of these styles with these uh, individual carvers transitioned, but it felt a little hard to, I wanted to see more of that. Give me I, a little better grounding in that. I made a note of that for him to have more illustrations yeah. in this chapter, but also the next chapter. And so essentially these more rural carvers, uh, people were wanting the softer cherub imagery, but they didn't necessarily have the time or the skills or the pattern to just do that out of the blue. And remember, too, they were doing, a lot of them were doing this part-time. This is not their full-time job. And so what they would do is start to adapt their own designs with softer imagery. And he calls this visual punning. 
In particular, one of the things they would do is they kind of work heart shapes into the death's head. I thought this was interesting because I've seen in other art forms where when people are drawing like skulls, the nose cavity, sometimes they draw it as kind of like a heart. And some of the examples was the the wing tips would curl around, around and make a heart. Yeah. I think the mouth was the a heart mouth sometimes. The mouth was another one. And I thought one was interesting because there was the death head teeth of the top jaw of the teeth, essentially. But as it transitioned, became softer. They just pulled that down and kind of dissociated it from the teeth and put another mouth in there. Yeah. That, that's cool. Yeah. And he does have some illustrations in the chapter that kind of help with that. But I mean, you can just Google death heads and kind of get an idea, too, of what we're talking about. And I, I noted uh, from his descriptions, they look strange, quite strange, which I like. That's not a, a dig at them. I thought this is fascinating, especially when you start to understand how they developed. Yeah. But they are really odd imagery to look at, almost like he calls some of them Medusa heads. And I wasn't ever quite sure which one he was talking about with that. I don't, when I was in Boston and I was looking at all these, I don't remember seeing any that really had any hair or but anything like that. see, you like wouldn't that. see them in Boston, right? Yeah, these that's true. Ones. Yeah, that's true. Some of my favorite in Boston were like, they had these very creepy smiles yeah <laughs> like it was just somebody drew like hashes and then put a line through it so it looked very much like how i used to draw teeth when i was a child right, right. <laughs> it was just like whoa that's a lot oh something else he does talk about and this is something i have told people regarding cemeteries and it was and maybe i got it from this book i don't even know but how uh religious institutions and like associated artifacts including headstones are the most resistant to change like and i remember learning about how you know there's you can tell within a culture what they kind of value as their foundational beliefs based on how often something changes and things that are more resistant to change are usually those things that are more of the foundation if that makes sense mm -hmm. like death and religion and things of that sort that I will add though that if someone is gets a deep dive into someone's mind in the past always be a little cautious because oh yeah there are cases where people do that well but there are plenty of cases where they are definitely reaching well beyond where they should be oh sure yeah so people... just kind of always be a little skeptical of that actually I had a couple points I think in the next chapter. I was just going to say, I was just going to say that, that Tristan, yeah. in the next chapter, take some things he says, even with a grain of salt, but we'll get to that in a second. We will get to that. And one thing that stood out to me was he goes through all this and then he starts to cover a bunch of exceptions or variations to the pattern that he's laid out. And I made a note that, you know, we don't need to go into detail about exactly what those exceptions were, but that's kind of what I was wishing the what I was wishing the Four Lost Cities book was going to do. Oh, yeah. Because he yeah. starts off with, this is the broad trend. But actually, this is how it works in rural areas. But actually, then it doesn't even always work that time either, you know? So talking about those exceptions and acknowledging them, you don't have to necessarily spend a lot of time on them. Um, if people were wondering what we were talking about, this is kind of what we wanted to see, I think. Yeah. I mean, for me in this chapter, the favorite, besides the death heads... One of my most favorite things he was talking about is just like burial patterns, not necessarily the headstones, but the way that people buried them. Because we have such a, um, in my mind, kind of a sterilized view of how a cemetery should look. You know, one grave shaft per one body. And that wasn't always the case. And it still isn't all the, always the case. I mean, go to New Orleans, for example. 
But, you know, we are so far removed from everyday death compared to people in 16, 17, 1800s that different plots were designed differently. Sometimes when they were burying people, they would there's entries in journals about the people who were burying graves coming up with teeth and little bits of bone and things like that. They would reuse graves. They would, sure. I mean... And they would come across bones from a, a previous burial and then just kind of push them to the side and then use that burial. Yep, and a lot of times uh, families would be buried kind of in the same plot and you buy a plot and you kind of throw whoever will fit yep. <laughs> there. And I know it sounds weird to us and probably... So some people are uncomfortable with that idea, but it goes also back to the difference in how they thought about it instead of, you know, here lies so-and-so, here lies the body of so-and-so. This is just the earthly part. It right. does, it's not the part that really matters. And it's not a memorial for the family in the same way we would do that today, go right. and visit and everything necessarily. Yeah. And then he finishes up this chapter by talking about the seriation exception that he found with headstones. And so I, I liked this. Essentially, in Cape Cod, there are two peak popularities for the death's headstones. And I, I don't remember exactly right now his reasoning for why, but essentially availability. Um, it was popular, and then it was trending downwards, and then some um, shipping line opened up or something that made them very, very available again, so people started using them again. And so... To him, this is a perfect example of why we need to be careful with this technique, because this is definitely a two-peaked variation. They look identical. You can't necessarily divide them uh, into two separate popularities. And what's interesting is one of the benefits of historical archaeology is having knowledge of you know shipping lines that open and different probate records and all this stuff that can help kind of fill in those gaps, I would be interested to know how this would look different if we didn't have all that information. Would we then think that they were two separate like things? I don't know <laughs> what you would call it, but it would just, you know, this is a good example of why all those records and stuff are important to historic archaeologists. And why they're important in this time, remember, we this is new concepts, right? So seriation had just been an assumed pattern. Yeah. People were using it, but they hadn't had any way of testing it until historic archaeology started being studied. Yeah. Goes back to that quote from Indiana Jones. Theory is only 99%. You can only be 99% sure with theory only. Yeah. I don't like that quote. <laughs> Roll with it, Tristan. Mm, yeah. So next we move on to chapter five. I would have the house strongy in timber. Uh, that it is strong with an E in this case, using the old spelling, I'm and sure is house the case. House with a W, H-O-W-S-E. Oh, I didn't misspell that correctly then when <laughs> I made my notes. <laughs> and so similar to pottery and to headstones, now we're going to look at architecture and how that has changed and how that reflects cultural norms and changing culture within the New England area. And I know there's people that are like, wait, architecture is above the surface. How is this archaeology? It is indeed archaeology. We do find remains of structures that are either partially or completely subterranean. So just hang with us. Also, as we talked about in the last episode, this may not have been a separate discipline like it is now. 
we usually treat this as a uh, historical archaeologist or sorry, what was it called? Historic architect, historic architect, architectural historian. Thank you. There we go. We got there. This is also a architectural historian would be doing the existing usable buildings, whereas an archaeologist would be basically the ruins of various kinds. Interestingly, he does you know, talk about the three different ways we get information on buildings, right? And so we have the surviving structures of the period, but he's talking about the existing usable buildings. Then he right. talks about the archaeological evidence, which he says is entirely underground. Like, not always. That's a little too cut and dry. Right. But that is just the generally the trend for sure. But he also, I thought this was interesting. I got the impression that he was saying the archaeological stuff is only the stuff that existed underground. So you're only going to find the the trenches, the post holes, the cellars. And I wonder if he was aware of how much of the upper building sometimes was deposited I found on the that part to be really strange because I mean, especially with historic archaeology, you find um chimney chimney collapses, sometimes you even find like nails and hardware pretty close if not on the surface. It just and I guess I'm coming from a Florida perspective, too, where our historic structures are much more recent than New England's historic structures. So, so maybe, maybe some that of this has... hadn't been well enough established at this point. Yeah. Either. Yeah. Well, so one cool thing that we actually is not that uncommon is a house will collapse either burning or just from age and collapse over and it'll collapse sideways. And the wood will sit there and rot or burn. And then the nails actually end up getting deposited in the exact places. And we can actually see them in lines of where they were constructing the house. That actually gives us quite a bit of information about the house. And so I thought that was an interesting omission. Well, I'm not also, sure if I understood what he was saying correctly there, though. I too. feel like he doesn't really talk that much about like the hardware and things like yeah. that. And that's a lot of what we find. He's very focused on foundations. Yeah. Which yeah. is important, too. It's, that's a lot of information. Yeah. Yeah. Foundations and then existing structures. Right. There's less focus on the archaeological evidence in this case. Right. Like we, we would find hardware, nails, glass, things of that nature, brick. And I guess he talks a little bit about that, but really not. But more, he talks about it more in the context of different materials used in the construction the of a itself. house. Yeah. 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 So interesting. I, I think there could be a lot more written on some of this now. I will forgive uh, at least a lot of that for the time it was written, though, for mm-hmm. sure. And then the final. Oh, I also thought this was interesting. There's two factors for how much information we can get from the ruins of a building. And that is focus and visibility. Have you heard these terms used before, Barbara? This is another instance of I'm like, <laughs> what is he talking about? Yeah. I never learned it in that way. And I feel like this is maybe, again, a product of the time. Maybe it's just gone out of fashion or yeah. maybe. I also feel like sometimes, especially in academia, people try and make something out of nothing. <laughs> Applying <laughs> terms like techno, what was it? Um, Technomic? No, sociotechnic. There we yeah. go. Sociotechnic and that kind of thing. Where it's like, do you really need a separate word for this? Right. So I feel like it's almost like that whole ivory tower kind of situation. But and I, I felt like, so to kind of clarify, focus for him is how clear the pattern is and things like additions to a building can disrupt that. And then visibility is how much, how easily you can figure out what remains, what the amount of material remains underneath. Right. Which to me, this is all just 
archaeology. That, I didn't... <laughs> that was actually what I said. Is like this makes sense, but do we really need this? Yeah, we don't. Yeah. We don't need to define these aspects. It's like either there were a lot of structures, so we can't see very much, or there's a lot of materials, and so we get a lot of good information, or a mixture of both. Of course, as he says. Yeah. So again. Probably a product also of this being a new discipline. I'm just so glad that this was not familiar to you as well, because yeah. I'm reading through this and I'm like, how did I not learn this stuff? But I, I think it's just one of those weird instances where you're trying to... What's well, probably telling that we read this book in undergrad and it didn't stick with us. Yeah. So if we talked about it then, we haven't probably heard it talked about since. Well, like I started thinking like, you know how there's lumpers and splitters? Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, he's definitely a splitter as far as writing. He's still not the worst of them, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last source of data, of course, as you would expect, is the documentary records. And so for patterns on architecture, well, actually, before we go on, I want to go back just a little bit. I, again, appreciated that he recognized that surviving structures could bias our perspective of structures at the time because you know the poorest smallest roughest buildings are not the ones that have been saved for hundreds of years it's going to be the the mansions the wealthier homes the homes that had the family and the funding for the upkeep all these things i just want to make sure to mention that cuz i again i really appreciate how he does that and i think that's really important too if you're discussing things like plantations And we're seeing a shift in how plantations are studied. It's not just the big, you know, wealthy house, uh, essentially the slave owners, the plantation owners, but also, you know, that would survive the slave cabins. Not obviously there are exceptions. I don't want our colleague who's a big fan of Kingsley Plantation to yell at me. But um, But Kingsley Plantation is unique because they are preserved. Because they were made of uh, Uh, kakina. Yeah. So they're made of a type of stone, essentially. Yeah. So most of the times they were just essentially little shacks. And so, of course, and they sometimes they weren't even considered permanent structures, so they wouldn't survive. And that in and of itself would bias our understanding. And some of these plantation places are actually doing a lot of good work excavating. Yeah. Uh, our colleagues in Montpelier, for example, are especially well known for doing that yeah. and putting a lot of work into excavating and interpreting the enslaved experience. Right. And that's just one example. There's many, many other reasons that a structure would not survive. One of the most basic ones is what it was constructed out of and how it was constructed. Yep. Yeah. Actually, that's another one that comes up later. There was a push to try and motivate people to build with brick, but it didn't take on. But like one of two buildings that exist from that time in that city are made of brick. So you might think, well, half the buildings were brick then. And we obviously know that was not the case, but that's another good example of how that can bias what we think happened. So we move on and uh, we see the three periods reflected once again in architecture, very similar to how we saw it with the other ones, other material types. And so the earliest is very English and very corporate. Again, so you are working with very rough and temporary houses. Often, uh, a lot of times people are not necessarily viewing this as their permanent home. But then we start to see some cases in... Where was it? In northern New England. I forget where he says exactly. But essentially, they they have a more diversified economy. Uh, They have people are living longer in that area. And so people are more eager to start accepting this as this is my home now. And so then they start to put more and more work into these types of buildings. So the types of buildings they have, one is called salt boxes, which has a uh, central chimney. is one of the major features. We'll see that crop up in other ones. 
And this other one is called Earthfast, um, which doesn't have a lot remains. They've At this point, he says they've only found three of these buildings, but they have some records, I think, of some more, too. I had, I'm... This is another chapter where I wish he would have had more illustrations. Mm, yeah. Because being in the Southeast, I'm not super familiar with a lot of these styles. And to me, an earth fast structure, when I, I had to like go on and Google all this because I was like, what's the difference between this and just a house that is on pillars? And it's just a house on pillars. Right. <laughs> he, one of the ones they did find, I actually like this, is it has a part of it is a 300 foot palisade that include excluded nothing. It didn't enclose anything. And we know about it because of the records of when they're selling it. And so his theory is that basically they were starting to build it for defensive purposes. And then when they sold it to someone else, that person didn't just care to keep it up. I like to think he was having a spat with a neighbor. I know. <laughs> and he just like I, build this wall and that'll be good enough. And it seems like a lot of work to just. To stop. Yeah. I'm like, what was the. Yeah. I would love to dive more deeply into that. Okay. So uh, before we move too far along, I wanted to kind of jump back for a second and talk about the difference between vernacular architecture and academic architecture, because this kind of comes into play later on as well. But vernacular is essentially bulk. Um, it's a building done without the benefit of like formal plans. We're expert yeah, people, like it, professional used, people. It was oftentimes built by the occupants themselves or, you know, members of that community. He says that changes in values are likely to be reflected in vernacular architecture, like traditional culture, things like that. Whereas academic architecture is more like the buildings we build today, right? They have formalized plans that are created by architects and they more often reflect like contemporary styles, even formal architectural orders, like I think like HOAs and stuff like that. Like you must have so many windows on the front or it must be of this size or, you know, no bigger than this size kind of situation. And it's uh, less indic indicative of the lifestyles of those specific occupants. But I mean, you can still get gather information from it. It's not like these uh, academic styles are useless to archaeologists. I don't want people to think that. Yep. Good points. So he starts talking about next about probate records again, his favorite. And I think Barbara's favorite now, too. I Yeah, probably. And he observes that the probate records give us a lot of information on what rooms are called and how that changes and also how they were used, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. This is cool to me because I've studied historic structures, but I've never had the opportunity to study, 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 to study probate records. And I'm wondering how that would have changed my kind of view. I mean, I did my uh, thesis on a historic house. Right. And I, I never looked at the probate records. They weren't available. Um, it was more of a vernacular house, too. So that may have played a big difference in that. But now I want to just go digging through probate records. Yeah. And I don't hear much talk about probate records anymore. Yeah. Which is interesting. Maybe they were very specific to this time in this region, and we don't see it elsewhere as much. That could be why we don't hear it, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. But like with other materials we've talked about, uh, we start to see the initial buildings. Largely, you can see their, their England influence, but I think there's actually more deviation in this earlier phase because of materials available is largely why he thinks that's the case. So this was really cool to me because I never really thought about the differences between architecture here, especially this period, early period, 
versus England. And one of the main differences is the amount of lumber available to the new colonists in North America versus how much lumber was available in England. And I don't know. I I'm wondering, I mean, I understand like people lived there a long time and everything, but I just, was lumber really that short? Yeah. I, I believe so. Yeah. I have heard that elsewhere, elsewhere too, that lumber was one of the major exports here. And actually we have things like. That's true. Naval live naval, oaks and naval stuff. Naval reserves yeah. actually where they were saying this is for the Navy to build their ships. No one's allowed to touch it. Yeah, that's true. That's a thing we had down here in the Americas for sure. Yeah. I just, I thought it, because, you know, over in England, they use like slate roofs mm-hmm. and thatched roofs and all these heavy materials where they really had to kind of bolster up the presses, I guess. Mm-hmm. Would that be the correct terminology? Yeah, like thatching was temporary. You had to go and kind of redo it every now and then. But here they used a lot of, well, not in New England, right. <laughs> they used a lot of wood slate or of uh, wood tiles, um, shingles. There you go. Too, wood siding as well. Yeah. And the reason I say New England specifically, because in Florida, <laughs> wood anything is still considered pretty temporary. <laughs> Very temporary in Florida. Extra temporary. Yeah. As they were finding out frequently, historically right. as well. <laughs> They try to build a fort, and then by the time they get to use it, it's fallen to pieces. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so he continues to talk about the kind of the deviation from England styles. And I again, I like this that he talks about, you know, in this region like Rhode Island, it's a little different than the way it was done in the Massachusetts Bay. One of them was a little more away from England styles than the other, but you can still see it, you know. So there is still variation he's observing. One thing I thought was kind of cool was uh, log cabins were not really a thing. I, you know, this is so ingrained in the American culture. I mean, I was literally just up hanging out in a log cabin last week in Blue Ridge. And yeah, I didn't know this. I mean, I Lincoln. feel like I'd heard some of it, but <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really clear. Well, and, and Lincoln could have been in a log cabin. Right. Sounded like. But yeah. it wasn't what the earliest settlers were building. Right. So log cabins were actually brought over by Swedish immigrants, and big part of their purpose was defensive. So we talked about palisades, and if I guess if you don't know, palisades are usually vertically planted wooden posts to make a wall. Yeah. And so if you build a house out of logs, you basically have a house built out of palisade, kind of, you know, so much more defensive than another another type of house. Yeah, I had so no idea. I don't know how much that had to do with his overall point here, but I thought it was too interesting to not talk about, which might be why he included it in the I first place. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, because I think we're so, we're such a, I don't want to say we're a log cabin culture because we're really not anymore. But when we think of old America. It's the romantic idea yeah, of what it was like. Yeah. yeah. But then he talks about what is the oldest house or oldest surviving house which you just can't wait any longer huh i can't but is there anything else we want to talk about before uh if y'all can't tell i'm excited then go ahead talk about it okay yes so the fairbanks house is the oldest standing timber frame structure in the new world and it documents dated to about 1637 and I Googled it because I love historic structures. And you tell me that there is an old building, I'm going to Google it. So I did. And what's really neat about this is you can uh, see the difference in how 
they added onto the house to kind of accommodate their needs at the time. But it's beautiful. I you can take for like ten dollars. It's still a um, it's a house museum. What's really cool, what I found cool is I think it's remained in the family that originally constructed it for eight generations. And then in 19, I think it was like in 1902 or something, it was turned into a house museum, which the thought that there was even house museums in the early 1900s kind of blows my mind. For $10 on their website, you can take a virtual tour. It's very cool. They also have other photos on their website, but they talk a little bit about the history of the house and the occupants. And what blew my mind is it's there's like a modern or more modern house just like feet from it. You know, people have just kind of built around this structure as it's lasted. But it is really cool the, the way it was constructed. You can see where like they added on kitchens and bathrooms as, you know, plumbing became a thing and how it kind of grew with the family. So I would definitely I put it on my list of places to visit. (laughs) <laughs> but I would definitely check out their website. It's really cool. And that's one thing. It's a little bit of a soapbox for me is you'd mentioned it growing with the family and changing. And a lot of times we seem to have this kind of like perfect ideal of what the historic houses look like. And there's value in that too. But I also find a lot of value in looking how they changed and why this wing was added and when it was added. And I, I love oh, that yeah. stuff too. I feel like we underappreciate that sometimes. It's, when you look at even just the exterior photos, you can s- almost see the different styles. And um, it's so I've been watching a show on TV where the family lives in a log cabin and it's a log cam- cabin that was passed down for, I think, four generations. One thing that I looked for and nobody else is going <laughs> to look for this. I was like, well, where is the, di-? you know, if this was passed down in generations, I want to see differences in, you know, the style. And whoever made the TV show actually did that. You can see like the old log cabin versus the new and you can see where they put drywall versus where it's like log timbers. And I think that stuff, while maybe not pretty to some people, you know, like you said, we want this kind of like sterilized, very perfect view of history. The Fairbanks house shows a lot of character and it, it shows, story. yeah, it tells the story of the people that lived in it, but definitely, definitely check it out. The photos are just amazing. And it's actually a really big house. So it grew a lot over time. And they talk about that. There's a little video that's free to watch where one of the docents goes through the history of the house. He's standing outside the house and you can kind of see what it looks like while he's talking. So definitely check it out. Okay. I haven't yet, but maybe I need to. You do. You will like it. <laughs> I promise. Then we move on to looking at floor plans. And this was a little hard to follow. Like you said, it needed more pictures, but I thought it was pretty interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And I just, I mean, we live in the age of Google. So I did a lot of Googling. I I feel like we have the benefit of reading this book that was written in the 70s with Google. I think it definitely adds to it because it's seriously lacking in diagrams. There's a couple of good diagrams, but I wish there was more. There were some things that I was reading and I was like, I have no idea what this even is. Definitely could use a few more. So one of the major trends that I thought was interesting with the floor plans was with the Earthfast homes and how they were, I guess, looking at historical records, they noted that craftspeople would be paid for the initial job, but then maintenance would essentially happen with no extra charge. And so what they think is going on is there's kind of a social contract. And essentially, there's kind of like craft person will do the maintenance for all these people for free. They'll do other things for them for free. 
and it's just kind of a, a back and forth. Also, apparently some of the time, part of that social contract was housing and paying people almost as employees. So some of these earliest buildings essentially had servants' quarters built into the home. Which I, for some reason, I don't remember reading about this the first time I read the book. It didn't. And, um, I might have put it off to the night before and been right. Yeah, too there is that. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's different when you're reading this as a student. <laughs> yeah. But then something interesting happens. So a lot of these. But these... Were, they were called cross passage homes, right? These are the ones that had like the servants' quarters in yeah. them with the passage. I don't remember the term right now, but that's okay. But sometimes, in, at least in some of the cases, these servants were the indentured servants. And there's a period of increasing conflict between the indentured servants and the funder, fund, person who funded their journey over. So I guess we should explain what an indentured sure, servant yeah. is in case people don't know. So an indentured servant in this case is someone who, in exchange for passage to the colonies, would agree to work for the person paying for their passage for a certain amount of time. And so early on, they would live within the houses of their employer. I don't mm -hmm. know what you would call them. Patron, maybe. Patron, yeah. They would, you know, work for them for a certain number of years to pay for their, essentially, ticket to America. And at first, yeah, they were housed within. But then legal records show us an increase in cases in indentured servants suing their patrons for... Uh, apparent mistreatment. And so this tension was rising. And uh, around this time when tension is rising, you start to see the servants' quarters actually built outside as a separate building entirely, which I, I'm not entirely sure that he, how he interprets that or how I would interpret that. He's either like, get them out of the way or, okay, fine, you can have your own space. I'm not sure quite what is going on with that. Like I said, we don't always know the whys, but the trend is what's kind of fascinating a lot of the times. We see the house sizes themselves also change with the social structure. So as a community becomes more established and more wealthy, the houses tended to get bigger and bigger. I also found the discussion, and this kind of goes back to uh, earlier chapters where he talks about how the houses became kind of more divided into rooms. Mm -hmm. As we became more individualistic, we start to have more rooms. And I remember, like, you see this in historic homes where there's, you know, the whole family sleeping in one room does not lend itself to a lot of privacy. <laughs> right. Things like that. And he observes that in more rural areas, you still tended to have some of them. I forget which one this was called, but essentially it opens up directly into the living area or one of the major living areas. Right. And the idea was that this actually came from rural shepherd UK. I and this, you know, you don't have the neighbor popping by, so you didn't need that level of privacy. Right. Whereas in larger communities, then they tended to have those little more subdivided to give themselves a little more our space and, and shared space. And yeah, there were like rooms in the house that were dedicated public rooms mm -hmm. or more public rooms for your visitors, like the hall, the parlor, those areas that were like gathering spaces for you and your guests, whereas early, especially rural homes, didn't necessarily have that. They didn't necessarily need that. And I also liken it to, he didn't state this specifically, but one thing I was thinking was how in rural areas, probably a greater amount of your time was spent outdoors. And if you were socializing, it was probably either at a common public space, like a church or something like that, or you were outside. A house was really just a place to 
sleep and store your belongings and maybe eat. But he didn't specifically say that. But that's one kind of difference I was thinking about when I was thinking about the difference between rural and more urban homes. And then once English culture and style started to become popular in the Americas again, we see the Georgian style introduced. And where the previous styles, as we talked about, were vernacular, they were not professionally made, they're not made with a plan, and they're very organic and kind of all over the place as the families grew, the Georgian style was like really rigidly symmetrical, really commonly had a common plan. And uh, so essentially there is, you've probably seen some houses like this. There's a central hall, you enter through the middle, and then there's rooms with closed doors on either side and the staircase going up, typically. I still see this actually in 1800s houses today, this similar layout. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty pervasive. It lasted mm -hmm. for a while, it seems like. Or at least influences of it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And then like things like windows would be very symmetrical on the outside. And actually to the point where some vernacular buildings were built with a facade to have that symmetry, even though the house inside was all over the place. And actually to the point where some of those windows were useless because <laughs> the building, the way it was built inside made them useless. Yeah, they talk specifically about a farmhouse. The Mott farmhouse was like that. It just... It looked Georgian on the outside, but you went inside and it was definitely not adhering to Georgian architectural kind of rules or whatever you want to call them. But the Georgian style, I guess, was attributed to the fact that wealth was increasing. There was also more craftsmen around to kind of build these full-time craftsmen. So this is a style more in the academic sense where you would have somebody build the house for you as opposed to vernacular where the occupants were building it. And also he talks a lot, and I never even really thought about this, but the large number of like architectural books that appeared in America around this time. Large number, but not much variation right. from what I was hearing, which, yeah. is, which I thought was interesting because he thought that might explain why there's so little variation in the Georgian style houses, because they're all based off of these few books. Right. That's kind of a cool concept. Yeah. I so wonder if that's held up. I Yeah. And I I did not realize... I guess the different, I had never really thought about vernacular and academic in the sense that he does. So this, yeah. it, it's a very clear way to Academic get, doesn't seem like the right term. It but doesn't, but I when he, he but I get now when he's talking about like the architectural books that were available and things like that, I can see where he got that term. But yeah, I would have never thought of it that way. And I've never really, because I took a, a class in historic architecture in undergrad. So a long, long time ago. And I remember learning about vernacular, but I don't remember there being kind of two categories, vernacular and then academic. I really like the way he sets this up because there's a distinctive way to differentiate between the two. I'm curious if it has held up. So I'm noticing that as we kind of go through and talk about this, we're both struggling to parse out some of the details a little bit more than we were with the other one. And I wonder if he's including a lot more details that we are just not as familiar with and we're having a little more trouble picturing. I don't think I'm following. I, I felt like I was having an easier time structuring what we were going to talk about next with the headstones. Oh, yeah. This was a very long chapter, too. It was, for sure. <laughs> and just a lot of descriptions of floor plans and things that, again, didn't always have a accompanying 
image to help me kind of see what he was talking about. Yeah, well, and that and that's where I had to go back and do a lot of Googling, like jettied houses. I had never heard of that yeah. term. And then I went online and I was like, oh, my gosh, I've seen these. I mean, you know, my mom grew up in England going to visit family. They're I everywhere. I live in one now, actually. Yeah, that's right. You do. It's not, <laughs> it's we, not an old house by these standards, but for some reason they decided to build these this neighborhood with jettied houses. Yeah, and it just means that the second story overhangs the first, so sticks out more than the first. Mm -hmm. And I, I just had never heard it called that, but I had to, that's one of a bazillion things I had to Google in this chapter yeah. and look for photos. So I wish there would have just been illustrations or diagrams or something to kind of help me through that. So note to anybody who ever does an, another edition of this book. Right. More <laughs> pictures, please. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but he summarizes everything at the last bit of the chapter, kind of his overall ideas that he's trying to communicate here. So the earliest houses show ties to England. Uh, they grow more unique and diverse with time. And they're also organic and corporate, so a lot of shared spaces. And this growth reflects the residents' needs. Then the Georgian style comes in and is a very ordered, a very structured style, um, very about balance and symmetry, uh, similar to the individualized grave markers and sets of ceramics. So there's some parallels he sees there, essentially. And uh, uh, once again, the, the new ideas began in the urban areas and then were slowly passed to more rural ones to varying degrees of I don't want to say accuracy, but similarity, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Architecture is just cool. It it's, is cool. It's interesting to see how we utilize it and how what we do and what we believe and what our values are kind of shape that, too. You could probably dive really deep into architecture. Oh, 100%. <laughs> All right. So for our last chapter today, chapter six, small things remembered. And so this chapter is basically everything else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we've talked about ceramics, gravestones, and houses, and he says, well, what can we learn about from other material types? And he kind of starts with saying most other material types lack a lot of the detail that we can get from these other categories he laid out. I didn't think about this until just now, but I suspect we could come up with a few exceptions to that. Um, it might not apply to later, but for example, glass bottles. Yeah. I think that would probably, when he's talking, they would have been hand blown. But when they start to use molds that they blow the glass into by hand, that has all kinds of diagnostic features and stuff. Um, but that's a that's a later period than he's talking about here. True. Yeah. So I feel like there, we could find a few more. But anyway, he starts off by talking about furniture. And essentially, kind of furniture is a bit of a problem because most of what survives is going to be in museums and as we've talked about therefore very biased in what has survived but apparently we do know that for example chairs were kind of not used especially not for practical reasons until the late 1500s and before that they typically had one per house or something and so you can think of it as like the throne the, throne, the, the, the important head seat. of house would right. sit there and whatnot and i never really thought about this but if you even watch like older movies, if people are sitting on something, it's usually like a bench. Mm. I was I can't remember the name of the show, but I was watching a show where the wealthy folks like were sitting in chairs. But then you go and you see like the servants. These were not slaves. These were servants. They go and to their quarters and they're eating at essentially what looks like a picnic table, a bench 
style table. Sure. So even though we see it all the time, I've never really thought about the chair in this way. And it probably so, depends on the movie and the accuracy of the movie too. Yeah, this was um, historical fiction. So, yeah, you know, it's not super, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's not, um, the accuracy is definitely in question, but sure. it, to me, even if it's not super accurate, the fact that they use that to portray like the wealthy class versus the working class shows that there is some value to understanding the chair. I don't know. You know well, what I'm saying? In, like to their portrayal. Yeah. Sounded like there's at least some level of accuracy whether yeah. or not it was intentional is always right yeah that's question. true too but i also like his discussion of the bed yeah and he was saying you know beds were not very common they were less common and they can't be used to account for the number of people in a household and i started thinking about my household i have two bedrooms both have one has a queen bed and one has a double bed and i was like so if you were to do that you would think four people live in my house you know, so I had never heard of somebody using beds as a way to count the number of people within a house. Same it goes for you, you can't use a chair. Sure. Chairs. I think this his point here is this would go the opposite direction, though, because in this context, right. you're like all the kids are in one bed together. Basically. Right. Yeah. Or they were sleeping on the floor. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, like chairs, the surviving pieces of beds are a bit problematic. Uh, interestingly, then he goes on to talk about tools and how he says, Either not enough has been learned or not enough survived due to their genuine rarity or to a failure to identify them for what they are. I bet you that's changed. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it depends on what you talk about as a tool, right? Because that can be a very, very broad category. Well, I mean, I'm picturing like hammers, saws, basic tools. Yeah. But I mean, even like I, you could put other things in that category too, like kitchen he would, items. He would and separate stuff. that out. Yeah, that's true. Sure. He probably right. would. But I, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like that probably has changed. Yeah. Cause like, so there could be some like a regional difference, maybe. Yeah. Or it could be like a hammerhead lasts so long. Why would you ever throw it away? Just get it a new shaft and then and could be passed through generations and it may, maybe it never enters the archaeological record. But there are other things like an axe head that's going to have a more limited lifetime a or a saw yeah right and i've seen some of these things in more recent contexts than he's talking about to be fair but I'm, I'm betting we do have a lot more information on them they may still be relatively rare but it probably also depends on the class of people we're discussing too where you might find those things and also another thing i was thinking is like say it was a bigger property like flower do 100 or something like that that has since been kind of divided up into different parcels would that change where we find the tools like if we had that kind of understanding you know what i'm saying like there might be a shed that we don't know about it was a temporary structure i would be interested in knowing like it a property like Flower Do 100, if since this book was published, because there is now more of an interest in those outbuildings and stuff like that than there was maybe even when this book was written. True enough. When he's talking about this, he's talking about how the study of the not famous people is just starting. Right. And how it needs to keep continue. Yeah. That has entirely changed since he's written this book, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. But there are so many factors, too, and how much things get reused, like just the, the economics surrounding the people. Um, mm -hmm. I know 
when we enter the American Great Depression, we can completely see a change in how people use things. They were using all that stuff down to the nub, basically. Yeah, yeah that's true. And so that kind of thing could definitely influence the record, too. And especially like in his case of the first colonists, it was very rough. People were there temporarily. Maybe they weren't throwing that stuff away. They're using it for other things. Or maybe, you know, this axe head is no longer good, but give it to the blacksmith. He can turn it into something else. Right. I, I don't know yeah. enough about that technology. But anyway, I'm betting that we do have more information now than he did this time, though. Right. Next up is tableware. Which I found this one to be cool. <laughs> he talks a lot about forks, which I didn't know this, but they were an it Italian invention. And they weren't even popular in England until the mid-17th century. Like everything else, it seems, their appearance in America was uh, later than that. The whole kind of evolution of this is really yeah. neat to me because the rounded knife blade like that of our, our butter knives and things like that. Or dinner um, knives. or Yeah, or dinner knives. I guess, yes, that's true. There's a mm -hmm. difference between a dinner knife and a butter knife. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a rounded, rounded knife blades occur only when the fork takes the place of essentially the pokey thing that you're using to stab your your food with and put it in your mouth. And I just... But it's, only in England. Right. Right? Yeah. That was the cool thing. Well, in Europe, I guess. Well, in, in this case, trade is coming from right, England. Right, yeah. So I've had arguments with my cousins about this, and apparently I am wrong. I apologize to all my cousins if you're listening. My cousins in England and I, when I go to visit, they always eat with their fork what we would consider upside down. And they're like, no, this is right side. You guys do it wrong. So we always have these arguments over who's holding their fork correctly. Apparently, it's the Europeans. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, we didn't learn to use the fork till much later because it wasn't even introduced here until much later. So we never, I guess, went directly from knife is the stabby thing to fork tine is the stabby thing it was more yeah what it, i understood happened was england had forks and so their knives lost the point right so they had rounded knives but a lot of the knives in the americas came from mm -hmm. england so now they have rounded knives and no fork right and so they were using uh spoons, spoons right. for a lot of their food and now and then when we picked up the fork. We just basically adapted that same right. use, but now we can stab it sometimes. Exactly. So we use our forks like a spoon, essentially yes. like with and the. And I do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. With <laughs> right? the, the, you know, the, we use them wrong. <laughs> I'm very upset by this. Yeah, you lost. I have died on this hill. I'm like, and I was wrong. But I just thought this whole kind of evolution of eating cutlery utensils was very interesting. To me, I never really thought about the fact that there's just so many different types of knives. Like, obviously, you have your steak knives and then all the knives you use to, you know, prepare your food. But also the actual knife you use to cut your food has changed mm -hmm. so much. Who knew? Yeah. And then he starts talking about the dishes themselves. Yeah. So back in the more communal period, people tended to eat mixed dishes, so like stews and that kind of thing. They didn't really do separated servings of food until they got to more of the, to the more individual times. And he cites how we have plates today still that are divided into three sections as being derived from this. 
felt like a little bit of a reach to me. Maybe I would need to see more than. I mean, I can see how there was. I see the logic. The logic and the evolution. Like if we're eating, I I always think of like the paper plates you use at barbecues where you want your. Yeah, that's baked what he's talking beans, about, not basically. to like m- soggy the bread of your hamburger, or you right. know. But I don't know that you can say it's it stems directly from that. I think maybe it was influenced partially by the fact that we are now eating something that isn't a stew. But to me, it just seems more like um seems more like a modern, a more modern idea of having separated compartments. Maybe right, because you could also just put it in a bowl. Like, right. You know what I'm saying? There's other options out there. Or just put know. it on the plate together. But then your bread's going to get soggy, right. Tristan. <laughs> we also see a change in animal bones, and particularly in the butchering of these animal bones. So when it's mixed meats, you don't have to be very careful about what cuts you're getting and how much you're getting. It just all goes in the stew pot. But when you're getting a serving, then you want to be more careful. So we see a shift from basically butchering with chopping right. to butchering with saws. Yeah, which I never knew that. I never really thought of that. And I knew you could see that archaeologically. Like, was, I guess I never how, got how this, is this butchered? Yeah, I guess I never got the significance of how what that implied as far as how people were consuming. Right, that is true enough. Yeah. Then we get to every archaeologist. Well, our second favorite thing is garbage disposal. We love garbage, guys. It is mostly garbage what we do. And I, but I thought this was interesting. His take on this. So essentially. The New Englanders at the time would just chuck their food out the door. And I remember this being described by some of our colleagues, especially when comparing this to Spanish methods of disposing food as just very slovenly. But he says there was actually a purpose for this, probably. He thinks it was actually to uh, allow the pigs and the chickens to pick it over. So it's essentially feeding the, the animals. And then it would get trampled into the ground. And, you know, who cares about the outdoors? Later on, an archaeologist would come along and find it. And find its trampled little fragments of stuff. Yeah. Well, what I thought was most interesting is how he talks about we always or a lot of people would assume that the differences in how we dispose of our garbage had to do with population growth. Mm -hmm. And he finds that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. There's some places with very high population that still practice this. And the shift according to him, didn't really come until the Georgian style was introduced. Once again, Georgian style is bringing in concept of orderly and keeping things nice and neat and tidy. And that's when they start to dig deep pits to bury their garbage in. And archaeologically speaking, this is way better for us because now we have nicely preserved garbage that we can study as opposed to highly trampled little fragments. So we like it better too. Yep. You also get that stratigraphy and stuff like that that you wouldn't necessarily have if they just tossed it out and it got trampled by people and animals. Yeah. But important to acknowledge that that could bias the archaeological record too. Oh, Um, yeah. So it's something that we have to keep in mind as we study these things. The last kind of section he covers here is music. And we, we've we talked about this, and we both struggle with this one a little bit. It kind of fits in, but it's very historically driven, I yeah. guess, rather than archaeologically driven. Right. Which is nothing inherently wrong with that. And it is interesting. And frankly, if you like bluegrass music, you really should read this section. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I just sometimes struggled with, okay, where's the archaeology? But like you right. have said, he does have a very broad definition of what archaeology yeah, is. Yeah, he makes, he can 
says everything basically could be archaeology, yeah. including language and music yeah. and stuff. And I mean, it is possible we could find some hardware and things like that from musical instruments, sure. like the dulcimer and stuff he was talking about. However, it's so disconnected and so it's very detailed that I'm not sure we need to go into this. I think he just loves bluegrass music. And- I think so, too. <laughs> which, again, if you like bluegrass music, yeah. this is a great little piece for you to read. I it, highly recommend it. Yeah, definitely. But he does talk about how you know, there are parallels and similarities in how the music changes based on or also didn't. or didn't. Yeah. Or how it culture kind of influences it and individualism in, influences it. So it has some of the same themes that you would see sure. in the other chapters as well. Though, interestingly, he's talking, mostly he's talking about a much later period with this. Right. Because yeah. he talks about how some of these remote, very, very, very remote areas retained the original British musical styles up until the introduction of electricity. Right. And then that they start to see a lot of change happen quickly and you start to see popular versus folk right. coming into play and different styles come and go. And the ultimate result of a lot of this is bluegrass music. So bluegrass music itself is not like original traditional music, but it is very closely related to that type of music as how I interpreted this. Yeah. What did he say? Bluegrass is like imposing new world views on old war world musical order or something like that is how he kind of describes it. And also the discussion on music that was meant to be danced to versus music that was meant to be kind of listened to. Or was, worked to in yeah. some cases. Yeah. Some of it was just music to be played while you were doing a job everyone hated. Yeah. Yeah. Which can we get more of that? Yeah. That's why I have headphones. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh do you any more you want to say on the musical section? Nope. But okay. definitely if you're a bluegrass fan, check it out. Yeah, definitely. I do want to talk about how he ended this chapter because I thought this was especially interesting because he acknowledges that when you approach all of these material cultures with the idea of this is how culture changed and when and why, that it becomes very easy to be self-filling with that. So essentially, you can find what you want to find from it. And when you come to it with this preconceived idea of what you're going to find, you're going to find that. But he says in this case he feels that the trends and patterns, especially in the first three pieces of material culture that we've talked about, are so strong he feels pretty confident in that. And I think he's established that fairly well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would be interested to see what, if any of this has changed. It is kind of, even though he's doing a good job of laying out some of the exceptions, it is still kind of cut and dry for when these things change. And I imagine it's probably not that simple in reality, as is often the case. But that is also a trend in archaeology. We think this is the thing that happens, and then we slowly start to realize it's more detailed than we initially thought. Yeah. And I mean, you got to start somewhere. Exactly. (laughs) Essentially, you just have to... to... Ultimately, I am still deeply enjoying this book. I am too. There are points where it's like definitely dated. (laughs) There was one point where he talked about like giving China as a wedding gift and how that gets passed down and I was thinking to myself nobody really gives China's wedding gifts anymore so even some of the things in this book I start thinking about them and I'm like I wonder how archaeologists will interpret what we're doing right now like what cultural changes are happening right now and how will they be defined sure so 
I mean, and this was just a couple of decades later. Yeah. Well, it was edited in the 90s. 90s, yeah. So Not even. <laughs> so I don't know what he changed exactly, though. There yeah, that's the thing. That is, much, it's right? hard to say what he changed right. and what he didn't. But that wraps up this section, the next three chapters of In Small Things Forgotten by James Dietz. And our next episode will finish up this book with the final three chapters. And I have skimmed ahead, and it looks like this is going to deal with largely the African-American and enslaved experience. Which I feel like that may be one of the things that he quite possibly added. In well, he the... acknowledged updates in terminology. Yeah. And this may have been in there, but uh, he probably has expanded on this quite yeah. significantly. Yeah, I, that's I what expect. I'm thinking. So I'm, I'm assuming we'll get... I just wonder how it how the writing will change and how you know how yeah, it will true. compare to the. It could have a very different feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. I I know there's been a lot of very very good work on this subject since he's written this, but you know I can't understate how important this book is in establishing how important these to kinds of topics are. Yeah. So again, you have to start somewhere, right? right? And. Even though a lot of us may read these three chapters and be like, oh, this seems so out of date. It probably is. But take it for what it is and take it within its context. From what I have read from him so far in this book, though, I have to give him a little credit that even today, it seems like the way he talks about these things hold up better than a lot of things. do. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I have high hopes that this is going to be overall very well done. I'm sure we'll have some observations or, or minor critiques, but I'm hoping that we won't have anything really kick us or anything. Before we sign off, I do want to comment. Uh, we've talked about how you can only find a hard copy of this book. I did see that there is at least an audible version. So there might be an audio version of this book if you'd rather listen to it. And frankly, that might be a very pleasant way of listening to this, depending on the reader. I might be investing in that even after we're done with I this. I was just thinking the same yeah. thing. Like, I feel like this would be a very pleasant book to listen to. Because when he gets too deep into the details, you just kind of let that roll over you. And then, yeah, yeah, I could really enjoy this. But until then, we'll see you all next time. And we're looking forward to it. Happy reading, everybody. Archaeology Books for Fun is brought to you by the Florida Public Archaeology Network, a program of the University of West Florida. You can find out more about archaeology and about FPAN at fpan.us. We appreciate any feedback, so if you're listening to us as a podcast, please leave us a review. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Thanks for listening.